Okay. Well, thank you all for coming back. Um, we're going to start in right where we kind of left off. So we showed how the book of Esther is a typological scenario chronology of the great controversy. And now what we've done is we've ended up at the very end of the book of Esther where the saints are finally saved. Now, you would expect that the saints would be saved on a specific day, just like we all think Christ is coming back. It's very simple. But in fact, that's actually not the case. Before we get to that, though, let's review quickly. Um, we have, we have um, the second in command, if you will, Vashti, who uh, is deposed because she is insubordinate to the king. That's Lucifer. Then we have the plan of salvation that is uh, enacted. That is Esther becoming queen. Then we have Bigthan and Teresh going against the king. That's Adam and Eve. Then we have the death decree. That is Haman talking to the king, King Xerxes, who then initiates a death decree at the cost of about 10,000 talents of silver. And that is associated with the death decree of Adam and Eve from God. Then we have the, um, then we have the execution of the plan of salvation. Oh, there we go. Then we have the execution of the plan of salvation, which is Esther going before the king, okay? And she's going into the inner court, and then she goes into the most holy place to plead on behalf of her people against the law that cannot be changed, which is exactly what Jesus Christ did uh, for us in AD 34, and then again in 1844 when he went from the holy into the most holy place. Following that, just have we have two different phases of the investigative judgment. There are two, I can feel it getting cooler now, there are two, um, there are two nights of the banquet. The first half of the investigative judgment, nothing outwardly occurs. The first night of the banquet, nothing outwardly occurs. However, after that, we have the opening of the books. We have the reviewing of the specific thing that happened with Bigthan and Teresh, by the way, who represent Adam and Eve, by the way, who will be the first ones that will be, were the first ones in 1844 when the books were opened. And we have the rewarding of Mordecai with the robe of righteousness, which is exactly what's going to happen to the righteous dead in the investigative judgment. Then we move on to the investigative judgment of the living, okay? And that's going to happen at some point after the Sunday law passes, we know, because people who are alive are going to have to make a decision about which way they're going to go. Just like Elijah on top of Mount Carmel saying, if Baal be God, worship him. If Christ be God, worship him, right? Everyone has to make a choice. And then as you recall, after they made a choice, after three and a half years of no rain, the latter rain fell, correct? Because Elijah prayed seven times for the rain, remember that? Okay, so you have the Sunday law, then you have the uh, falling of the latter rain. Um, the things that happened at the second night of the banquet, which was that it was a wine banquet, that the king was wrath, that Haman fell, and the king thought that he was trying to fornicate with Esther, are the four words that we see in the second angel's message, which is fulfilled at the Sunday law. Preferably, specifically, fallen, fallen is Babylon because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We see this in the book of Esther because right after this, Mordecai is elevated to the prime minister of Persia. He is given power. He is given the signet ring. He makes laws, a law that allows the Jews to stand on that day of judgment against the law that cannot be changed. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit puts the law inside of us, in our hearts, that allows us to stand with the robe of righteousness in the day of judgment 
against a law that cannot be changed. And how was that able to be unfolded? It was because Esther and Mordecai worked together to make that happen, just like Jesus and the Holy Spirit makes to work that together for that to happen. Did the Jews in Persia have anything to do with it? All they had to do was pray for those three days. They had no part of it. They had no merit. Nothing that they did caused them to be saved on the 13th of Adar. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about justification, sanctification, glorification. Okay, so here we are to the time where the Jews are saved. Now let's get into it. What happens in Esther chapter 9. Just a few empty seats down here if people want to come on down. It's all about the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th. Okay? This is going to be, I could have titled today's talk the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th. That could be the talk. Because what we're going to do is we're going to show, how many of you have seen 3D printing? It's kind of a new thing, but not so new. Right, what happens is the printer prints something and then it prints on top of that until it actually starts to grow, right? What I'm gonna show, and I'm sort of setting you up for this, is I'm gonna take every single Passover, or I could take every single Passover that was ever mentioned in the Bible, and I could take it and put it in a two-dimensional plane and put another one on top of that and put another one on top of that, and what you would see eventually is a three-dimensional object of the plan of salvation. Okay, and that's going to explain what's happening here in Esther. Watch. So, in Esther chapter 9, let's just read Esther chapter 9. I'll break it down for you. There are two groups of people. There are people in the provinces, and there are people in Shushan. On the 13th day, which is the day of execution, the people in Shushan gather themselves together and defend themselves against 500 attackers. Okay, 500 attackers come to take their life, come to take their property, but they are successfully defended, and those 500 people are killed. In addition to those 500, the 10 sons of Haman, who are instigators of this rebellion, are also killed. Okay? In the provinces, 75,000 go up against the Jews. This is 127 provinces. This is the largest empire the world has seen up to this point. 75,000 attackers attack the Jews, but they successfully defend themselves, and those attackers die. Sounds like a good day. For Esther, it's not enough. Esther is not the sheepish, innocent girl from the, from the block, okay? She is now a well-seasoned political operative who understands the workings of Shushan, Washington. <laughs> so, she has two requests of the king. The king says to her, Esther, your people have survived. What is it that you would like to do? She has two requests. These two requests are going to be amazing when we break them down. The first request, king, give us one more day to fight in Shushan. Only in Shushan. He grants it. So he extends it one more day to the 14th. The other thing is, please take the dead bodies of the sons of Haman and hang them on his own gallows, which is in Shushan. Kind of an odd request. That's going to be the piece de la resistance of today's talk when we come back around to Haman's ten sons. So that's exactly what happens. They fight another day on the 14th. This time, 300 attackers go against the Jews in Shushan, and they are successfully defended, and Haman's ten sons' bodies are hung on the 14th. While that is happening in Shushan, the provinces are resting. They are done. 
They celebrate. So while, they're, while they are celebrating in the provinces, their brothers in Shushan are still working and attacking. Finally, on the 15th, those in Shushan are able to rest. And this is exactly, I'm just basically breaking down all of chapter 9. That's basically chapter 9 of Esther. Why does this happen this way? This bothered me for a year. I told you I studied, for Esther, I studied Esther for about three years now. I came to this and I said, this, why is this? This means something. Why would you do it this way, God? And, and literally, it takes 10 or 11 or 12 verses to say this. If you ever read Esther chapter 9, you'll see what I'm talking about. So as I said this morning, it's like Sudoku, okay? It's like Bible Sudoku. All of these things fit. If you haven't played Sudoku, you'll, you'll have to know that every row has to have the numbers 1 through 9. I know you're like, why are you explaining this? Everyone knows Sudoku, right? Anyway, the other thing I like to think about it is this is the epicenter. Esther chapter 9, I think, is the epicenter of everything else that happens in the Bible and kind of draws it together like the British Airways map of their flight schedule to London. This is an amazing breakthrough, I think. And this, again, is a picture of 3D printing. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take this, this, this object and I'm going to show you in different parts of the Bible how everything meshes together. And you know that the only way this could happen is if one spirit was in charge of the whole Bible, okay? So this is going to be an amazing journey. So let's look at the timeline of Esther. In four, this, this whole thing, the whole book of Esther happened in 474 BC. Now, the Jews count time very differently than we do. Their calendar is based exclusively on the lunar calendar, okay? Exclusively. They don't look at the sun. They look at the moon. In fact, the way they know that, they month, that the month starts is two witnesses, two or three witnesses, come and report to the high priest to say that they have saw, seen the first crescent on the moon. Okay? When that happens, that begins the beginning of the month. Because of that, the 15th of the month is always a full moon. Those of you who recall, and we'll talk about this, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, remember that the Passover occurred, the death angel occurred on the 15th of Nisan, and if you read it, Ellen White describes that the moon was fullest and brightest and highest at midnight, exactly when the death angel came, and it was a full moon. And that's because the 15th of every month is a full moon. So, those of you who know, the lunar calendar goes around 29 and a half days. We're going to get into some math here, okay? 29 and a half days. That means some months are 29 days long, and some months are 30 days long. So, if you do the math, 29 and a half times 12 is going to be much less than 365, correct? So eventually what's going to happen is that the spring festival is going to start to occur earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier in the year. So the high priest has to make a decision. Is, and he makes a decision around the 10th or 11th month, okay? What he has to decide is, is there going to be an additional month that they're going to add to make it a leap year? So just to show you a timeline here, here's the year. And what I'm going to show you is that this year, I think, is representative of the timeline of Earth's history. At the very beginning, in the first month, we have Haman's death decree, which occurred on Nisan 13, to be executed on Adar 13, which is the very last or 12th month. Death decree at the beginning, to be executed at the end. I think that's pretty easy to understand. Interestingly, Mordecai goes through this process, and he comes up with his own decree on Sivan 23. That's right out of Esther. What's interesting about it is that it's exactly 70 days after Haman's death decree. When, tell me, when Christ sent out the 12, these numbers, we're going to go over these numbers. You see these numbers over and over again, and it's essential that you know what numbers mean. Numerology is not 
antithetical to Christianity. Numbers mean something. And you have to know what biblical numbers mean. When Christ sent out the 12, who did he send them to? He sent them to the Jews. When Christ sent out the 70, who did he send them out to? The Gentiles. So who is this? This message is for who? 70 days. There's a meaning there. Seven means complete. Ten is the law. So we already said that months had 29 or 30 days. It started with the new moon, so the full moon is always on the 15th. year was 11 days too short. So what they would do is they would have to make a decision. If there was no signs of spring around the 11th month, that means it's too early in the year. We need to add an extra month. They would add an extra month. But the interesting thing about how they added the extra month is they would take the last month and push it to the end, and they would insert the extra month in the middle. And they would change the 12th month and make it the 13th month. Why is this important? All of the holidays associated with the last month stay with the last month. Do you understand what they're saying? They're saying that it's important that whatever is the designation of that month, it's less important that it be in the 12th month, it's more important that it be in the last month. More imp- another point, the events that occur on Adar 13 in the leap year would have occurred on the first month if it was not a leap year. So what I'm going to say, what I'm going to show you, by the way, what are the, guess what the sign was? Guess what the sign was that the high priest looked for to see whether or not it was too early in the year for the, for the spring feasts? The harvest, the latter rain. We'll come back. In other words, God is looking out, and if he doesn't see the latter rain ready to fall, he's going to delay another month. That's a window of time. That's a period of time. And I'm just going to put little seeds out there. Remember Ellen White saying, I'm starting to realize that we're going to be here on earth a lot longer than I thought we were going to be? Remember Ellen White saying that we could have been home in heaven back in 1890 and 1900? Could it be possible that God looked out in 1888 and saw that there was no way the latter rain was going to fall? And we, we are now living in the 13th month? These are questions. We'll see. So, the point is, okay, so here's some quotes that we're going we're to go through um, fairly quickly because we don't have a lot of time. But let's say, in 1901, Ellen White said, we may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination. Many more years, as did the children of Israel, but for Christ's sake, his people should not add sin to sin by charging God with the consequence of their own wrong course of action. Okay. So, if we've got a regular year, and you can see here a regular year, I'm just starting off here with the eighth month, which is around, you know, it's called March, Klesev, Tevet, all of these are, I don't know how to pronounce these necessarily, but there they are. And here is a leap year. So you can see very clearly that the 13th month could fall on the first month. Now, if we look at that more carefully, those days that I'm talking about, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th day of the 12th month, which are those three days that the Jews were saved over, everyone with me, fall exactly and are superimposed on the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th of the month of Nisan. What holiday are we referring to when we talk about Nisan 13, 14, and 15? Passover. Isn't the entire earthly situation nothing but a big Passover? Okay, so what I, what I went to go do, and, and by the way, also note this, that when unclean Jews could not participate in the Passover because of ceremonial uncleanliness, 
when they brought the issue to Moses, Moses went to God, and what was the answer? Exactly. Come back the next month, but on the same date. So the dates are important here. So that's why I feel I have the license to look at the 13th, 14th, and 15th and compare it to Nisan. Also, what was the date that the execution was written on? The 13th day of the first month to be executed on the 13th day of the last month. And all those were drawn by lots. Okay, so again, let's look. 13, 14, and 15. 500 hackers die, 10 sons of Haman die, they defend themselves. Esther goes to the king, asks for it. We've got the one more day, and we've got the gallows. They're resting on the 14th. 300 defend themselves, or 300 are killed in the defense of themselves on the 14th. And then on the 15th, they're resting. So the provinces are resting on the 14th. So where did I go from here? I said, God, the, the answer has got to be somewhere in the Passover. Okay? So let's look at the Passover. So what was the first Passover that ever happened? Egypt. Okay? We'll talk about that. First of all, though, let's look at the 13th. So what is the 13th? And this is what I'm going to do. This is going to be a double presentation here. Okay? Yeah, I like chalk talks. Here's 13. And for those of you who are listening on Audioverse or whatever, I want you to just take a big blank piece of paper and I want you to divide it into thirds and write 13, 14, and 15. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to make a 3D drawing. So, what's associated with the 13th? The death decree was given in Nisan on the 13th, right? 10,000 talents of silver was the price that was paid on the 13th. Christ was sold by Judas on the 13th. Christ died for our sins, right, on, on the 14th actually, but he, he was sold into this on the 13th. Um, all of the believing Jews' lives are spared. Esther and Mordecai did all of the work. So what are the themes that we see with the 13th? We're seeing the 10,000. Why, why did God forgive Israel in our Matthew uh, 18 story? It's because of a covenant, right? There's a covenant. There's grace that's involved, what did Ellen White say about the 10,000 talents? It was something that he did that we could not do for ourselves. There's no way we could pay back the 10,000 talents of silver. This is grace. By the way, what's the number in the Bible associated with grace? Anybody know? Okay. Christ fed the 5,000. Let's see if you can get this. Christ fed the 5,000 with five loaves. The altar of sacrifice is five cubits by five cubits. Um, when Christ came to Abraham and said that he was going to kill all of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham says, will you not for 50? And then he started going down by fives until he reached the number five. Um, every 50 years is the jubilee when everything goes back to the way it was. Are you guys picking this up? What's the number for grace? Five. Okay, we're going to get back to that later. All of those stories have grace associated with it, by the way. Okay, all right. In other words, did any of the Jews who survived on the 13th, did they have to do anything? Did they have to go before the king? No. So this was all grace to them. So in other words, the Jews were saved on the 13th completely because of grace. Nothing else. 
Okay. So here's the numerology. 10,000. 10,000 represents the separation between humanity and divinity. I brought that up with the fact that it was 10,000 that was put toward the death decree. It was 10,000 talents of silver that the servant owed the king that could never repay. Saul slayed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Ten thousand is the highest number in the Jewish, uh, number, in the Jewish numbering system. Um, in Psalms 3, 6, it says, not afraid of ten thousand around me. A thousand shall fall at my side and ten thousand at my right hand. Jesus is the chiefest among so what we're getting here is 10,000 is the number that separates us from God, that God is ready to clear based on his grace. We have no part in it. We can't even begin the longest trip to do that. That's what 10,000 symbolizes. Grace or forgiveness. As I said, Obadiah hid 50 prophets, 100 prophets by 50s in a cave and then fed them, fed them bread and water. A jubilee was 50 years. Feeding of the 5,000. I love this. Feeding of the 5,000. Remember that story? Jesus fed the 5,000. How did they arrange the feeding of the 5,000? In rows of hundreds and 50. Tell me, if you take 5,000 people and arrange them in rows of 50, how many rows do you have? 100. That's why one version says rows of 50, the other one says rows of 100. One's counting one way, one's counting the other way. Question. What were the dimensions of the sanctuary in the wilderness? 50 cubits by 100 cubits. Right? So those people were arranged exactly along the dimensions of the sanctuary in the wilderness, which represents the entire sacrificial system of the outer court where is laid the altar of sacrifice where Jesus died for all. Tell me, were there some people in that 5,000 that was just there for the food? Yes. And when the Jesus saw them on the other side of the lake and started talking about eating his body and drinking his blood, did they want to stick around? No. But it's clear that the 5,000 was for everyone. I'm going to put, we're starting to put stuff together here, okay? Abraham bargains with God. We talked about, oh, by the way, when, God, when Jesus at one of the Passovers goes to the pool of Bethesda and heals the man without asking for any faith, it mentions how many porches are at the Pool of Bethesda for some reason. How many porches are there? Five porches. It's, these are little things that God puts into the Bible to say, this is what I'm talking about. This is a little signal here. Okay? So when you read Matthew 18 and you see the king found that he owed 10,000 talents, you should immediately start thinking, okay, this is talking about humanity and divinity. There's a whole code to understanding the Bible. And we talked about that. Okay. So now what you can do is you can take that understanding and translate it into something else. So let's go to Leviticus 26.8. Here it says, And I will give you peace in the land, and ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. And ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you, what's five represent? Grace. Shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Can I interpret that? What was 100? Remember 100 was the amount that the pence, remember the fellow servant owed the servant five, uh, 100? Remember that? And that was representative of the 30 pieces of silver. Remember 100 denarii equals 30 pieces of silver? And that is the same as 
Christ's death on the cross, because that was the price of Christ dying on the cross. So now let me reread verse 8 here using the vernacular. And the grace of God will cause him to die on the cross, and that shall put the difference between you and him away. Do you see that? Five, a hundred, ten thousand. Five gets rid of ten thousand. God's grace is what gets rid of the separation between you and God. You can't do it. Ellen White says is that if you inject one little piece of merit into that separation between God and you, if you say that part of this is my merit, that would be accounted as treason. Treason. Okay? We're talking purely on the 13th. Have we talked about the 14th yet? No, we haven't talked about the 14th yet. I'm just talking about the 13th. This is grace. Our evangelical Christian friends, they've got this perfect. Okay? They're absolutely correct for the 13th. By the way, what is the number of Jesus? What is the number of Jesus? No. Completeness is the number of Jesus. How many, when was Jesus named Jesus? On what day? The eighth day. What day was he circumcised? The eighth day. If I take Jesus Christ and put it into Greek letters and add them up like we do for 666, what number do I come up with? 888. How many people were on the ark? New beginnings. Jesus Christ. Christ rose on what day of the week? The eighth day of the week. Thirteenth. It's Christ plus grace. Where am I going next? It's going to be Christ working through man. Finally, it's going to be Christ's work is complete. I see a lot of squirrel frowed furrow brows. Let me go through. Number one, what is the numerology of number one? There is only one God. It is God the Father. One God and Father of all. That's Ephesians 4, 6 and Deuteronomy 6, 4. Unity of the Godhead before the Father and the Son. He is everywhere and he is all-knowing. You take any number and multiply it by one, it is that number. Jesus is number eight. Jesus was named on the eighth day of his life. Jewish boys are circumcised on the eighth day of life. By the way, circumcision is a remembrance of what? The covenant, exactly. So let's, where does covenant go? Circumcision. Okay? I hope you can read my writing. A bullock or a lamb could not be sacrificed until the eighth day of life. Jesus rose on the eighth day. Jesus represents a new beginning. There were eight people on the ark. Jesus' names add up to 888. Number three, that represents the third person of the Godhead. That's the Holy Spirit. Okay, quickly, do this. You're going to love this. Go to 1 Kings 7.26. 1 Kings 7.26. This is what atheists like to use to discredit the Bible. I know I'm doing a lot of things. I'm going to bring this all together. You're going to see this, okay? 1 Kings 7. 1 Kings 7.26. And it says in 1 Kings, they're talking about the labor the bronzen sea in Solomon's temple, okay? And it says here, and it was a hand breath thick, and the brim thereof was wrought like the brim of a cup, 
and flowers of lilies, and it contained two, how many? 2,000 baths. A bath was a unit of measurement. How many baths? 2,000. Okay, let's go to uh, 2 Chronicles 4.5. It's talking about exactly the same piece of furniture. Exactly the same piece of furniture. 2 Chronicles 4.5. I am slower than you guys. Okay, 4.5. Oh, I'm in 1 Chronicles, that's why. 2 Chronicles 4.5. Here we go. And the thickness of it was a handbreadth, and the brim of it like the work of a brim of a cup with flowers of lilies, and it received and held how much? Wait a minute. Didn't it just say it was 2,000? And now it says 3,000. What gives? Read the verb very carefully. It says it held 2,000, but the second one said it could hold a total of 3,000. Right? How many people can fit in the car that you have today? Five. But could I get more people than five in there? I probably could, right? What's the difference? One includes when there's an abundance of rain, latter rain, it can hold up to three. So three versus two. You'll see this over and over again. Do you ever notice in the Bible it says two or three? How many witnesses do you need to establish something? How many people threw Jezebel over the arch? Two or three. How many firkins was there at the wedding feast in Cana in each of those stone containers? Two or three. Two is the non-standard state. Three is when there's more rain, when there's more water. That represents the Holy Spirit, the latter rain. How many people were converted on the day of Pentecost? 3,000. So three represents the Holy Spirit. It's the third member of the Godhead. It's 3,000 baths, three firkins, three eunuchs in 2 Kings. 3,000 were converted on a day in Pentecost. There's 300 Gideon's men. Three represents the Holy Spirit. Six, that's obvious, right? Man was created on the sixth day. 666 is the number of man's system on earth that competes. And finally, seventh is completion. It is the rest, okay? These are not controversial. These are kind of... Here, here's the, um, the name of Jesus in Greek. It's pronounced Jesus, okay, if you know how to speak Greek. And you can see that that all adds up to 888, okay? So what does this mean? I started looking at the Passover, okay? And let's just leave this up here. We'll get to that later, okay? So I could not figure out the 500, but I could try to figure out the 750 or 75,000. So... What is the 13th all about? It's about grace. What's the number that represents grace? Great. Is this any kind of grace? This is probably the most graceful act that has ever been accomplished in the history of the entire universe. We have the very highest person at the very highest level coming down and dying the death on a cross for us. So if I were to do a numeric computation, that would be five to the fifth power. That's grace to the grace power. And who is giving us grace? Who is giving us grace? God the Father, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Ghost. Do that computation, what do you get? 75,000. 
That's how many attackers died on the provinces on the 13th, okay? Now, let's talk about the 13th. What does five mean? And how many people died on the 13th in Shushan? Five, 500, right? Okay, so now I said, let's go and look at the Passover, okay? So let me get an eraser. The first Passover, as you said, was the Passover in Egypt. What was the first thing that God asked the Israelites to do getting ready for the Passover? What was it? Before the sacrificing of the lamb. Before, that's on the 10th, right. But before, before that, what did they have to do? What did they have to do? So, they all have to be circumcised. All the men. I can't spell up here because I'm like, I'm bored. Okay, circumcised, okay? Then what was the next thing that they had to do? Sacrifice a lamb, right? And put it on the door. Okay? At the evening sacrifice. Put it on the blood on the lintel and the post. And then what did they have to do? What were the instructions that God told them to do? You have to go into your house and do what? Shut the door. Who said shut the door? You got it absolutely right. This piece of wood is going to symbolize shutting the door. Okay? Now, what happened the next day? Freedom. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. By the way, did they also have to get the leaven out of the house here? Yes. Leaven had to be gone. No leaven. And here they had freedom. And it began seven-day period of time without any leaven. Are you guys with me? Okay, I'm trying to build this. You've got to bear with me, okay? Once we start to get this, this, this will start to go. Had to be circumcised. They had to kill a lamb. They had to put the blood on the door. There was no leaven supposed to be in the house. And then they had a seven-day period of time, and they were free. But were they out of Egypt? No. When did they hit the Red Sea? Because you know what happens at the Red Sea. They emerge out of the sea, kind of like a new birth, okay? Kind of like a resurrection. And the Egyptians die, right? Right? How many days did it take them to go from freedom to the Red Sea? Seven days. Seven days. Okay. When I saw this, how many, how many people are seeing a pattern here? There's three periods of time. The first period has to do with justification. The second period has to do with no leaven. Sanctification. And the last period has to do with glorification. In other words, we've got the outer court, holy place, most holy place. Do you guys, are, are you seeing anything else? Those of you who know Adventist eschatology, are you seeing anything else? This is what struck me, and I'll show you this a little bit later. There was a chart hanging in my bedroom for years that was made by Gordon Collier. How many of you have that chart by Gordon Collier? Okay? It's the most amazing chart I've ever seen. 
on everything that has to do with the end times. It has Bible quotes, it has Ellen White quotes. It's so, it's huge, it's about this big, and the font is like that small. Everything. There are, there's three major time periods up here. The only way I came across this was because I had those three time periods emblazoned on my mind. Watch this. 1844, Sunday Law, Close of probation. Seven last plagues. Second coming of Jesus Christ. Every single Passover that ever is recorded in the Bible fits this pattern. The Passovers that even occurred before the Passovers. You're not even aware of Passovers that occurred before the Passover. I will show you Passovers that occurred before the Passover. Jesus, four Passovers. He had four Passovers while he was on this planet. His first Passover, where he cleansed the temple. The second Passover, one of them was where he fed the 5,000. And finally, the last Passover, which was the Passion Week, which is an exact replica of what we are about to go through. Where are we right now? We're right here. That's where we are. Okay? You guys ready for this? Okay. Watch. Think about this now. I want you to think about everything we're going to do right now in terms of 1844 to Sunday Law. Sunday Law to close of probation. Close of probation. Second coming of Christ. Three time periods. And when we read these stories, you're going to see the connection. Let me give you a little bit of a hint. Do you remember when Christ had to go up against Barabbas? You know what Barabbas means? Jesus Christ, son of the father. Barabbas literally means son of the father. They were both put up, and they had to choose between the two. Who did they choose more? Barabbas. Was he, was he an imposter of Jesus Christ? What day of the week, of the Passion Week, did that happen on? The 14th. Don't we know from Ellen White that Satan is going to come and impersonate Christ at this very time? Do you see this? The Israelites were in Egypt, but no longer under the power of Pharaoh. Just like the 144,000 will be on earth but no longer under the power of sin. Do you see this? Okay. I've got example after example after example. I can go as long as you guys want me to go, but I don't want to go that long. There is something, there is something here where they have to, the Jews, even to this very day, have to get rid of the leaven in their house. They get rid of it back here, but there's a certain period right here where it's got to be gone. Do you know what they call that? They call it sealing away the leaven. I'm not kidding you. What is happening in this eschatological time period of the 14th? Sealing. Sealing is happening during that time. Oh, it's, it's, this is, okay. So we got that. Now, 500 are here, right? And 300 are here. So I, what I did was I went to the very last Passover. Okay? I went to the very last Passover. 
the Passover of the, of the, of the Passover week. I'm gonna, there's so many other examples I could give you. I'm going to skip to the crux. Something happens in the last week of Christ's life called Simon's Feast. Anybody aware of that? So Simon's Feast is where he goes to Simon's house, who's living in Bethany, which is outside of, of uh, Jerusalem, and he's there with Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Simon, and his disciples. Now, just so you're aware of the relationship here, how is Simon related to Mary? Uncle. And who is Simon's son? Judas. That makes Judas and Mary cousins. Ever wondered why there were Pharisees at the burial of Lazarus? Because Simon is a Pharisee. He's family. Okay? Question, is Mary Magdalene the same as Mary, the sister of Martha? Yes. A absolutely is correct. Question, is the woman caught in adultery the same woman as Mary Magdalene and the sister of Martha? Yes. They're all the same person. We, can, we cannot figure that out from the Bible, but Ellen White says specifically that in talking about the woman caught in adultery, that she was at the foot of the cross. She will be at the foot of the cross later on, seeing her Savior die on the cross. And unless it's another Mary, it's the same one. So what does that mean? Mary, so, someone talked this morning, in, I think it was, yes, in Sabbath school, that if you have somebody inside of you, a, 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 an evil, and you try to get rid of it, and you don't fill it with something else, what, what fills it back? Seven other demons. Did the Jews, were the Jews obsessed with getting rid of sin? Did they fill it with, with Christ? So what happened to them? Mary Magdalene had how many demons cast out of her? Mary Magdalene was caught in the act of adultery. She had broken the covenant. She was saved by grace. She understood that grace, and she went to the feet, to the Simon's feast. She was so moved by the grace of Christ that she took her alabaster jar full of spikenard and broke it and anointed him. She thought he was going to be king. She had no idea that she was anointing him for death. In fact, Ellen White says that she, doesn't, she didn't even know what she was doing. She was moved by the... By the... So when the Sunday law comes, what falls? Latter rain. Okay? And then what did Christ say to her at the end? Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Here is a prostitute that becomes one of the most ardent followers of Christ. She is the first one that Christ sees after the resurrection. She is the first one to spread the gospel that Jesus Christ has risen. She is the first one to be disbelieved. I'm telling you that Mary is the typology of the church in every way. But she's not the only woman who's a typology of the church. We're going to go through some others. At that feast, there are two men that have a problem with what she's doing. Who are the two men? Judas and Simon. Let's talk about Simon first. Simon says, if you knew who this woman was, and he would know who she was, he's the one that led her into that sin. 
If you knew who this woman was, you wouldn't let her do what you're doing. And what, is, what does Christ say to Simon? He says, Simon, I, I'm going to tell you a story. There's two people, both owe one person. One owes 500, the other owes 50. He frankly forgives both of them. Who loves him more? The one who owes him more. In this story, Simon did not give the kiss of greeting. Simon was a, was a follower of Christ. That's why he was over at his place to eat. Which one felt that they owed 500? Why did she feel? What was that 500 representing? It was representing the grace of Christ. What day do we talk about grace? 13th. Because of that grace, she was moved to do something. What did I say? To do something. She was moved by the? Exactly. What day now are we talking about? Right? What did she do that she was moved? What did she do? She anointed him, right? Okay. How much was that worth? Go to John 12, 5. John 12, John chapter 12, verse 5. How much worth was it? One version of the Bible, or one, one gospel of the Bible says a, a, a year's wage. Let's see what John has to say. What's John chapter 12, verse 5 say? Someone yell it out to me. How much? 300. Look familiar? What does the three represent? Look up on the screen. Are things falling into place? How many people in Shushan were killed on the 13th? Because that represents grace. That represents what Christ has done for us on the 13th. That's justification. Now we're moving in to the holy place. This is sanctification. It's what we do as a relationship of our faith. This is the whole gospel of justification by faith. It is because of our faith that we have been justified that we are moved by the Holy Spirit to do what? To do what Mary did, which was break the alabaster jar full of spikenard and put it on Jesus' feet. Okay. So. Let's go to another Let's go to another, uh, another edition here, um, another Passover. Let's go to Joshua. Turn to Joshua. We've got to put this whole story together, okay? Once this whole story comes together, it's going to be amazing, all right? I'm building it. It's coming. Go to Joshua 5. Joshua 5. They've gone through the entire wilderness for 40 years. They crossed the Jordan River. They're coming to Jericho, but before they do... They're going to celebrate the first Passover since they left Egypt. Chapter 5, verse 3. And Joshua made him sharp knives and what? Circumcised. Here we are in another Passover and we're starting. Okay? Turn over the page. What is happening in verse 10? And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the? Here we go. Keeping the Passover. 
when they say the Passover, it's the preparation for the Passover. Okay, now tell me, what's the next thing that you see here? Um, what's the first part of chapter 6 of Joshua? Read that. Now Jericho was straightly what? What does this represent? It's closed. The doors are closed. This represents the close of probation. Right? And what's the next thing that Joshua is going to do? He's going to march around Jericho how many times? How many days? And there's one prostitute in the place. And the two witnesses, the two spies, which are also two witnesses, tell her, anybody that's in your house and dies, let their blood be on us. Anybody that's not in your house, their blood is on their own head. Joshua and the children of Israel represent God and the angels coming in the second coming. Jericho represents the earth. There is a few remnant that is there. What is hanging out the window? The scarlet cord. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. They have the blood of Jesus Christ and they have the faith that he's coming. Now, who is she? She's a what? That's exactly right. Okay, let's go to another story. Okay, we're starting to put this together. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham has just been circumcised and Ishmael. And what happens is he is visited by three angels. Do you know who the first angel is? It's Jesus and two other angels. We talked about this a little bit. The first angel's message is Jesus. He's saying, fear God and give glory to him because I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment is coming. And what does Abraham do? He bargains down God by fives, right? 50, 45, then he drops to 40, 30, 25, right? All the way down. It's just grace. That's all it is. Meanwhile, the other two angels go off to Sodom to meet Lot. Are we before the children of Israel leaving Egypt? Is this story happening before that? Is it possible that we could have a Passover before the Passover was even instituted? Watch. What does Lot make for the two angels for dinner? Here, here ladies, is an example of a man making dinner, okay? It's in the Bible. What does he make? What kind of bread does he make? Unleavened bread. What? How is he making unleavened bread? This is, we're not even at the Feast of Unleavened. It hasn't even been instituted yet. Yet, they're making unleavened bread. Now, those guys outside that want to have relations with the two angels open the door. Lot goes outside. And finally, what do the two angels do? They shut the door. Right? And then what do they ask Lot? Do you have anybody here that you want to take with you? We're going to destroy the city. And Lot then goes to his two daughters and asks them to leave with him. What do they think of him? They mock him because over here, let him who is righteous be righteous still. Let he who is evil be evil still. You see, the, you see that? And then what happens? They go and the, and the city is destroyed and Lot and two daughters in the cave. What is the oldest daughter sleeps with Lot, right? So we have, again, we have this issue of a woman 
that is not going along with the covenant. What is the offspring of, of the eldest daughter? The Moabites. Okay? All right. Now, you know, the Bible has a funny way of saying this stuff, but there is a term that is used, I believe, for the Passover before the Passover. When you talk about Abraham and those angels, it's called in the passage of time. I'll give you another example. If you start off with Cain and Abel, um, Jesus comes to Eve and Adam and says, the serpent will bruise your heel, but you will crush the serpent's head. That's the covenant, correct? Is that the covenant? He, he didn't have to do that. That was grace, correct? Then what does Abel do? In the passage of time, Abel brings a what? A lamb. And he slays the lamb. And then what happens to Abel, who represents Christianity? He is killed by Cain, who represents Judaism. Works. And what happens to Cain? He gets a mark on him, doesn't he? And anybody who touches Cain is going to get it sevenfold. Who came and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD? And what will the Romans get sevenfold? Seven last plagues. You seen that? Okay. The Passover, this is, this is, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm building a three-dimensional object. You're seeing the same thing over and over again. And what you're seeing is this. You're seeing a woman who is not faithful to her covenant becoming a chaste virgin. And then we'll get to the rest. This is where it gets amazing, okay? I have examples. For instance, we can do... Oh, let's see here. We can do, we did Cain and Abel. We can do the birth of Isaac. We can do Joshua. We did Joshua. We can do the first temple. We can do the second temple. We can do um, Christ's first Passover. Oh, I love Christ's Christ first, or I like um, Christ's third Passover. So check this out. Christ at the third Passover feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. Okay? That represents justification. And then where does he go? He goes up to the mountain to pray, alone with God. Jesus gives his bread, his body, death on the cross. Then he goes up to the mountain alone with God to pray. That's his ascent into heaven. And what he does when he comes back, and meanwhile, what are the disciples doing? They're getting into a boat on the sea. What does the sea represent? Peoples. What does the boat represent? They're in it. It's the church. The disciples are in, so now we have the Christian church on the water, and it's getting a little choppy in the early centuries. Christ comes down the mountain, but he looks like a ghost. Holy ghost, perhaps, coming down. The descent of the Holy Spirit, the Christian church. Peter, ironically, is the one that wants to get out of the boat because he thinks he's superior. Do we have a church around that period of time who has Peter of the head, who thinks it's superior? but it's not looking at Christ, so what does Peter do? Into the sea. As soon as Christ steps into the boat, in other words, as soon as the Holy Spirit comes into the church, the boat is now at its destination. You see that? Okay, and here we are on the 14th. So what happens on the 14th? Now, Christ is on the other side of the lake, and now what is he having discussions about? He's having discussions about tradition. 
and the laws of man versus the laws of God and ceremonial cleanliness. Are those the issues that we're seeing with the Sunday law? Yes. And then what happens? The next thing that happens is he goes and we have the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the third Passover. Fourth Passover. We already talked about grace. We talked about Simon's feast. The last thing I want to talk to you about to put this all together is, so do you guys get what I'm saying here with the 13, 14, and 15? Justification, sanctification, glorification. This is the close of probation. Okay. Now, there's something that you've got to know that, you do, that I didn't know, that probably most of you don't know, but it has to be learned. And that is what happens at a Jewish wedding. Okay? So hopefully there's not too many young kids in the room because this is just the facts of life. Okay? So what happens at a Jewish wedding? There are three phases of a Jewish wedding. Okay? The three phases, and this is all biblical, okay? The first thing is there is a covenant. Do you remember that Joseph and Mary were covenant to each other, but they had not consummated the marriage, correct? Because she was still a virgin, right? So guess where we are here? This is covenant. There is a covenant. If he wanted to get rid of Mary, he would have to divorce her because they were legally married in the eyes of the law, okay? What's the next step? Consummation. This is where it gets really interesting. Then, it always ended with a seven-day wedding feast. Interesting, isn't that? You guys picking up on this? How many days? Interesting, isn't it? It's the three C's of a Jewish wedding. Covenant, consummation. Okay, now, covenant is pretty easy to understand. A man and a woman make an agreement, we're going to get married. Okay? You've got to be faithful. If the church is a woman and Christ is the husband, has there been a covenant? Yes, yes there has. Has that woman, the church, been faithful? No. no. Do you think that means something with all of these examples that I've gone through where we had Rahab and we had the second or the eldest daughter? Okay. So in other words, we're starting off with apostasy. Prostitution in the Bible is a form of spiritual apostasy. Okay? Consummation. What happens at the Sunday Law? We have people leaving the church, and we have people coming into the church. We have the tares and the wheat. But by the time we get down to the close of probation, has the church been made up? Absolutely. The church has been made up. Finally, the consummation occurs, and now you have a seven-day wedding feast. Watch. Okay. We talked about the Passover. We talked about all of this. We talked about that. Here's the chart, by the way. That's, that's only the top half. I'm going to focus in on that. You've got the commencement of the investigative judgment, the national Sunday law, the close of probation, the second coming of Christ, and I've put 13, 14, and 15. That's my numbers on there, okay? So here we go. Justification, sanctification, glorification, outer court, holy place, most holy place, 8 plus 5, that is Christ and grace. Here is Christ working in man, and here is Christ being complete. His ministry is complete. He is no longer working on our behalf in the most holy place because he comes out at the end, right? 
Jewish Passover, there's circumcision, there's preparation. The leaven is being removed, but it is not completely gone. Here on the 14th, all leaven is gone out of the house. What is leaven a symbol of? It's gone. And if judgment is coming here in the, in the church, judgment begins in, the house of the, in, in our house, we're going to be the first ones to be sealed because we know the issues. We know the difference between Sunday and Sabbath, right? Do the people out there in Borneo? Or maybe they do, I don't know, okay? But there's some people somewhere that don't. And as soon as the last living person on earth makes a decision, close of probation occurs. We won't know when that is, but it'll happen. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's seven days. Here the Passover meal is eaten at the beginning of the 15th, okay? Interesting. Watch this. Watch this. This is, this is something, this is a little jewel, a little gem I can give you here right now. In the traditional Passover, all leaven had to be removed here, but the Passover meal was eaten over here. This would have been Friday night on the Passion Week, okay? Could Christ have eaten the Passover with his disciples at the regular time? He was dead in the tomb, right? So he ate it here at the beginning of the 14th. Watch the new covenant. Please remove all of your sin, old covenant, then I will dwell with you. You know, when you eat the lamb, Christ is in you. That's what it symbolizes, right? Old covenant, please remove your sin and I will be your God and you will be my people. New covenant, please let me be with you, let me come into you and I will remove your sin just by switching the day from when he eats to the beginning. Do you see how that just flipped around? He says, a new covenant I give you. In fact, as soon as Jesus dipped his hand in the bowl, who dipped his hand in with him? And who left immediately? Do you know that on this day, on the very day that we celebrate the Last Supper, we celebrate the Last Supper, the Jews celebrate a meal as well? where they have to gather all the leaven in the house, take it outside, and burn it before noon the next day. What happened to Judas? Before noon the next day. Jesus is saying here, let me sup with you, and if I come into you, sin cannot coexist with me. It will leave. That's the new covenant. Genesis, Adam and Eve given covenant. Abel brings sacrifices, killed by his brother. By the way, You know what's interesting that Ellen White says? She talks about the Jews being scattered over the whole earth. She says it's as if they had the mark of Cain. Okay? Is it possible that maybe she was involved with the same spirit that wrote the Bible? Perhaps, maybe? Christ's first Passover went to Jerusalem, cleanses the temple of money changers. Here we have an issue where we have money in the temple. We have a foreign god on our our economy in the temple. Exactly on the day that we're dealing with the Sunday law, Jesus does miracles and many believe. Here, Christ heals a man at the pool of Bethesda. No faith is required. He does this out of grace. There's five porches. The man does exercise faith, is healed, but what is the man criticized for? On the very day, breaking the Sabbath, on the very day that we're talking about the Sunday law. And then what happens? The, he, he goes into, if you read in John, he starts saying right after that, the time is now that the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and execute judgment. I mean, all of these things are happening in the right place in the text. You can go back and look at these. The third Passover, I talked about feeding the 5,000 with five loaves. Sermon on the bread of life. 
on the very day that Christ had the Last Supper. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Okay? The works, the works and sealing, this is all in the same order. And then finally you get to the transfiguration just when you should be getting to the transfiguration, which is when Christ comes. Christ's last Passover, we talked about that. Just as Christ died on the cross on the 14th, we must die to self on the 14th. And just as Christ was sealed in the tomb, so we shall be sealed as the 144,000. Okay? This is fitting perfectly into place. Now... I'll show you this. You have the covenant. You have the consummation. You have the seven-day wedding feast. Question. If I could show you in some way that the close of probation was associated with the consummation of a marriage, wouldn't that be powerful? Those are two independent things that we, we've done this in layers, and now I'm going to connect close of probation with consummation of the marriage. So let's see if I can do that. I believe it is in Early Writings 279. If those of you who have early I don't have early writings here with me. And my computer is all down. Anybody have early writings with them? No? I've got this all in my head. Well, I'll tell you what it says. In Early Writings 279, Ellen White has a vision of the end of the third angel's message. In fact, the title, have you got it? Perfect. I think it's just more powerful if I read it to you. Uh, it's way down here. Uh, it's at the end. I, I'm taking the time to read this because I think it's that important. Here it is. It's called The Third Angel's Message Closed. I was pointed, thank you very much, this is perfect. I was pointed down to the time when the third angel's message was closing. The power of God had rested upon his people and they accomplished their work and were prepared for the trying hour before them. They had received the latter rain or the refreshing from the presence of the Lord and the living testimony had been revived. The last great warning had sounded everywhere and it had stirred up and enraged the inhabitants of the earth who would not receive the message. I saw angels hovering to and fro in heaven. An angel with a writer's inkhorn by his side returned from the earth and reported to Jesus that his work was done and that the saints were numbered and sealed. Then I saw Jesus, who had been ministering before the ark containing the Ten Commandments, throw down his censer. He raised his hands, and with a loud voice he said, It is done. And all the angelic hosts laid off their crowns as Jesus made the solemn declaration. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Every case had been decided for life or death. While Jesus had been ministering in the sanctuary, the judgment had been going on for the righteous dead and then for the righteous living. Christ had received his kingdom, having made the atonement for his people and blotted out their sins. The subjects of the kingdom were made up. The marriage of the Lamb consummated. That's early writings, page 279. Thank you very much. Okay, so you see where we are? Here's the point. Now, check this out. This is going to blow you away. Go to, first Sol go to Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Now we're putting it all together, okay? I promise you, we're putting it all together. It's Song of Solomon, 
chapter 1. This is where Solomon and the Shulamite woman are getting married. Oh, I've got to tell you what happens in a, in a, in a wedding. So, there's the covenant. Then what happens is the man, the groom, goes off to his father's house and builds a wedding chamber for his wife. Only the father tells him when he's done. The groom doesn't know when he's done. Only the father knows. Does that sound familiar? When the father says, you're done, you're ready now, he breaks away like a thief in the night to go steal away his bride who's waiting at her house with the wedding party. That was happening when Christ was on the Mount of Olives and he was describing the parable of the ten virgins. They were sitting there waiting with the bride, waiting for the groom to come to steal her away like a thief in the night. He takes her back. Okay, this is Eastern culture, guys, okay? Just bear with me. This is the truth. He takes her back. They go into the wedding chamber. He consummates the marriage. Now, this is going to be horrific for you ladies, but the best man is at the door listening so that when the marriage has been consummated, the groom yells out, the best man hears the news, he spreads the word to the wedding party, and the party begins. How would you like that, ladies? Okay. Now, here's the serious part. Here's, here's the serious part. If you read in Levitical law, if a man is not happy with his wife for a specific reason, he can take her to the court, and then it is the wife's father's responsibility to bring the tokens of proof of her virginity before marriage. What is that? That is the sheet that the consummation of the marriage happens on. If there is no blood, the husband is correct in his assertion, and she can be taken out and stoned to death. If she is incorrect, or if, if he is incorrect, and they show the proof, then he has to pay a certain amount of money, he can never divorce her ever again. That's Levitical law. Question. In this analogy, see, now i got your attention, you've woken up. In this analogy, the church who is a woman, she is going towards the consummation of a marriage. Tell me, is there any way that she's going to have the proof that she needs in a court of law? There's no way. She's a prostitute. When does the consummation occur? Right here. What's the problem? She has no blood on the garments. Who died on this very day that supplies the blood? There you go. It's Christ's blood that allows her to stand in that judgment because there's no way she can do it otherwise. Okay? Just as... This prostitute will become, what does Paul say? I want to present you as the church as a what? Chaste virgin. So he, she can go to the consummation and have the wedding. Now, how many of you here, well, how many of you are involved in medicine? That's become a dumb question on this campus, right? A lot of you are involved in medicine. Tell me, what happens if a, what happens if a woman consummates a marriage on the 14th day of her lunar cycle. Okay. 
what happens? The consummation turns into a conception. Correct? And now what do we have over here? We have a woman. Let's back up. What day of the week is this? What, what number? What's the moon? What does Ellen White say the 144,000 must be to stand during, after the close of probation? They must fully reflect the light of Christ, the Son. In Revelation 12, what do we have? We have a woman standing on a full moon, clothed with the light of the sun, who is pure and is very pregnant. Right? Who is she giving birth to? Jesus, right? That's one interpretation that's correct. There's another interpretation. Who is she giving birth to? Watch. Jesus Christ was the son of who? Mary. Mary was a descendant of Ruth. And Ruth was a descendant of the Moabites. And the Moabites were a descendant of a prostitute. Jesus was also a descendant of Rahab. Correct. Judah and Tamar. Tamar had how many kids? Two. Which one came out first? Did Jesus, did Jesus descend from the one that came out? Well, one of them stuck their hand out. By the way, that story, Ellen White has nothing to say about it. There's no Bible commentary. There's nothing. It's a big gap. Let me tell you what happened. A hand comes out. It gets tagged with a red tag. Hand goes back in. Second baby comes out. That one is the, is the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Then that one comes out second. Jesus Christ was born of a chaste virgin who had prostitutes as its ancestor, was born with the nature of Adam after the fall, and never sinned, and went to heaven to minister on behalf of his people. The 144,000 will be born of a chaste virgin, with the nature of Adam after the fall, will never sin, will go to heaven, minister in the sanctuary, and had, and had prostitutes as their ancestors. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every single typology except for one, in which he is the type, and the 144,000 are the anti-type. Everything leads to Jesus. But Jesus is the first, Jesus is the first fruits, correct? What else is described as the first fruits? 144,000. Let me say it again. The 144,000 is the product of a chaste virgin with the Holy Spirit coming into her, the latter rain. Do you see that? This, this is a perfect analogy. Think about this. 
prostitute. Holy Spirit comes in. Conception occurs. Consummation occurs. On the 14th, becomes pregnant. Now we have Revelation 12. And what happens to the remnant? Follows the commandments of God and has the faith of Jesus Christ. Everywhere, when Christ says you must be born again to see Christ, you, what does it say? What do you say to Nicodemus? You must be born of the water and of the spirit. What does a woman do right before she gives birth? What does she do? Okay, what is the term that's used in the Bible? Okay, watch this. I'm going to prove it to you. The word is travail. Okay, look up Jeremiah 30. Oh, let's do this. Look up Jer- uh, Isaiah 66 6. I'm going to tell you is that every single time in the Bible the word a woman in travail is used, it's referring to that period of time. This is all tying together. What is, read Isaiah 66, verse 6. I'm telling you, this is, this is rough stuff. This is not easy stuff here. I, told, I, 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 tre- I tremble at trying to explain all of this stuff, but it's Isaiah 66, verse 6. Did I get that right? Is it verse 7? Well, I wanted to back it up a little bit. Okay, wait. Stop right there. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice from the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. That sounds to me like the close of probation. Like he's coming out of the inner courts. There's a voice coming out from the temple, and he's, this is it. This is judgment for his enemies. Where are we right now? We're here, but keep going. One day. Perfect. Okay. There's so many examples I can do, but the interest of time, I'm going to cut to the chase. What's this trouble called over here? It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Go to Jeremiah 30. And you can pretty much read the whole chapter. It's not that long, but I think it's going to be... In fact, I'll read it because I'm up here. Okay? Think about what we just said. The word of came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speak the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, and just saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, that's heaven, and they shall possess it. And there are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling of fear and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child? Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail? Where are we talking about? It's right here. 
and all the faces are turned unto paleness. Alas, for that day is great, and none, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. I could, I could do text after text after text. The reason why a woman is used in the Bible to denote the church is because of all of the aspects. How many know the story of Samuel? Samuel was born to who? Okay, watch this. Okay, once you understand this concept, you can now open the Bible anywhere and you will see the stories light up. Hannah was the wife of a man who had another wife with many children. And she would, at the time of the year, we would go once every year to the temple. Guess what time of year that was? It doesn't say, but I can only assume. This woman had many children, and she would persecute Hannah over the fact that she had none. Does that sound familiar? Do we have a church with many children who persecutes a woman with none? Okay. She desperately wanted to have a child. Where are we right now, typologically here then? She's already married. She's got the covenant. She's right here. She does not have the consummation to give her the child. She go, and, and by the way, this is the Sunday law period here, right? The Sunday law has to do with the wine of Babylon, correct? Are we all on the same page there? That if the church is going to go forward to the end, it make, needs to make sure that it's not involved with the wine of Babylon. So Hannah goes to Eli at the temple, and she is so distraught, she is praying silently so much that Eli thinks that she is. And what does Eli say to her? When are you going to stop drinking the wine and put it away? That's a rebuke to all in the church. Maybe not a rebuke, but it's a rebuke to the church who is praying for the latter rain, but at the same time drinking the wine of Babylon. Because this is where we are. What does she do? She tells Eli, no, 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 I'm not drinking wine. I'm praying. How do we get the latter rain? And what does the latter rain do to the woman? It goes into her. How many times have you read in the Bible where it talks about an Adam went into Eve or someone went into some woman and they had a child? That's the term for it. How many times do you hear God says, go away, I never knew you. And Adam knew Eve. This is what we're talking about. Christ wants to come in just like a consummation. So she prays for it. A year later, she's pregnant. The consummation has occurred. And what does she give birth to? Samuel. She holds on to him for enough time before he can be weaned. And then where does he go? To work in the temple. Just like the 144,000. See it? Put all these stories together. Put all these stories together. Samuel, the name literally means, I have gotten my requests. Again, let me review. The church, unfaithful, not deserving, gets it. It is because of, our, of God's grace that we love him so much that we are like, that we are like um, Mary, Magdalene. The part I forgot to show you that I was looking at, go back to Song of Solomon. You probably thought I, was gonna, I lost my train of thought there, right? 
Can you see how this is hard to explain? You've got to build on it, but I'm building on it, it's coming together. If you go to Song of Solomon, this is amazing stuff. Okay, I don't know where we are on time, but I don't care really now. now. <laughs> this is so good. Okay. Um, Song of Solomon, Proverbs. Okay. Chapter 1, verse 12. She's talking about right before the wedding consummation. What does she write here? While the king sitteth at his table. What was Christ doing at the feast of Simon? My spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. Do you know what the woman did on the wedding night right before the consummation of the marriage? As a girl growing up, she would save in an alabaster jar spikenard. And when Guests would visit her. She would put a little bit more in there, put a little bit more. Finally, she got a very large quantity of this stuff that was very valuable. And when it was time to consummate the marriage, she would anoint, she, in other words, she's putting all into her husband, everything that she's saved up. And she breaks the alabaster jar so it can never be used again. And she spills the spikenard and anoints her husband. That's exactly what Mary did, Okay to Christ. Now, Satan knows all of this stuff, okay? And he's going to want to pervert things to the point where you don't even want to think about this stuff and avoid this stuff. This male-female stuff, it's, it's amazing stuff. But what do we see today in the world? We're devaluing male and femaleism, right? It's becoming blurred. It's becoming not an, even an issue anymore. Um, there is the, tempta the last temptation of Christ, Right? Where that filmmaker made it look as though Christ actually married Mary Magdalene. There's some theories that that happened. It has nothing to do with reality. Christ says, go, your faith has saved you. She represents the church. Okay, so let's go back. We're going we're gonna to close this up here. Um, here, on the 15th, we have the full moon. We have the woman who is pregnant. We have the sun. She is being illuminated. And this is what Ellen White says. She says, Many do not realize what they must be in order to live in the sight of the Lord without a high priest in the sanctuary through the time of trouble. Those who receive the seal of the living God and are protected in the time of trouble must reflect the image of Jesus fully. This is happening on the very day that the moon is fullest and highest and brightest, right when the death angel goes out and the plague. We talked about Simon's feast. We talked about Simon's Feast, we talked about Mary, so I, a lot of this stuff I just kind of already talked about. Now, I told you that the most important part of all of this was Haman's ten sons. I'm going to tell you about that now before we go on. Oh yeah, here it is. The marriage of the Lamb was consummated. See, I had it all along. <laughs> okay. Jesus was born of a chaste virgin whose ancestors were prostitutes or deviants conceived through the Holy Spirit. The 144,000 will be born of a chaste virgin whose ancestors were prostitutes or deviants conceived through the Holy Spirit. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. The 144,000 will be the first fruits, Revelation 14, 1 to 4. Jesus had the nature of Adam after the fall and never sinned. The 144,000 will have the nature of Adam after the fall and will never sin. Jesus died and was sealed in the tomb awaiting the resurrection. The 144,000 will die to self and be sealed, awaiting the resurrection. After his resurrection, 
Jesus ascended to heaven to serve in the sanctuary. After the 144,000 ascend to heaven, that should be heaven, only they will serve in the heavenly sanctuary. Ellen White says in early writings, page 19, Mount Zion was just before us, and on the mount was a glorious temple, and about it were seven other mountains, on which grew roses and lilies. And I saw the little ones climb, or if they choose, use their little wings and fly to the top of the mountains and pluck the never-fading flowers. There were all kinds of trees around the temple to beautify the place, the box, the pine, the fir, the oil, the myrtle, the pomegranate, and the fig tree bowed down with the weight of timely figs, made the place all over glorious. And as we were about to enter the holy temple, Jesus raised his lovely voice and said, only the 144,000 enter this place. We talked about the story of Hannah. We talked about the Jewish wedding. You want another example? Go and read Acts 27. Okay, check this out. I love this. Oh, come on. So, Christ says, I'll make you fishers of men. What do the fish represent? Converts. Where are they coming out of? The sea. That represents people. Where are they going into? The boat, that's the church. So what does a boat represent? Church, sea represents peoples, fishermen as Christians, and fish are converts. This is what happens in the second to last chapter of Acts when Paul is in a ship and he's headed to Rome, but they run into an island called Malta. Do you know what the, the military wing of the Catholic Church is called? The Knights of... And what do they want to enforce? Sunday law. So what day are we talking about? Here's the, here's the moral of the story. Paul says that if you want to survive the storm, you have to stay in the... What, is the, what does the boat represent? The church. Do the sea captain of the boat want to jump out? What should that tell you? The per people in charge of the ship are ready to abandon ship. But what does Paul say? Stay in the ship. So the fact that it's going into Malta, what day of the week must this be happening on? What day? 14th. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, losing thence, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after they arose against it, a tempestuous wind called Euroclidon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up the wind, we let her dive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat, which, was, which when they had taken up, they used helps, undergirding of the ship, and fearing lest they should fail into the quicksands, stake sail, and, so was, and were, were driven. And we being exceedingly tossed with the tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. The shaking. And the third day we cast out our own hands of tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was taken away. Are we headed toward a time of tempest, the church, if the Sunday law is going to start? This is a message for us today. And now, he says, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me and not have loosened from Crete. He's saying you should have stayed in Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. In other words, the ship is going to be lost, but no one's going to die. For there stood by me this night of the angel, whose I am and whom I serve. So he got a message. 
saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that there shall be even as was told me. How be it must be cast upon a certain island. But when the, which night? When the which night? When the 14th night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria about midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country. Which country was that? Malta. And sounded and and found it 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found it 15 fathoms. (coughs) Then fearing lest we should have fallen upon the rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea under color as though they would have cast anchors. In other words, it's looking like they're going to cast anchors, but they're really, hey, let's, let's get out of here. Let's get out of the ship. Let's go down through the, through the lifeboats. Paul said to the centurion, Paul figured out what they were doing. And he says, listen, in, unless you stay in the ship, you can't be saved. You must stay in the ship. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them to take meat. That means eat. Eat what? Bread. Saying, this day is the? Wow. That ye have tarried and continue fasting, having taken nothing. Wherefore, I pray you take some meat, for this is for your health, for there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. And then it goes on that they hit land and they're going to jump out and the centurion doesn't want anybody to escape so he's going to kill everybody, right? But Paul convinces them not to do it. But the centurion willing to save Paul kept them for their purpose and commanded they which should swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land. So who's the centurion? A centurion is a soldier of which? Roman. So do you see the typology here? Ship, Roman soldier, stay in the ship, 14th day, 14th day. Okay. Now the end. Let's review. The 144,000 are going to stand in what we have shown here is the most holy place of this sanctuary. There will be will there be an intercessor on our behalf at this phase? No. Jesus has left the most holy place at the close of probation. God, we are standing before God the Father in the most holy place without an intercessor. Can we sin? No. That's okay, because we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Right? Here we are. Do we have a model on planet Earth for a human being standing in the most holy place without an intercessor? Has it ever happened before? happened every year. Who is it? The high priest. What did the high priest have to have with him before he goes into the most holy place? Blood of a bullock and a censer, which represents the righteousness of Christ. Okay? We have the 144,000. We have the consummation of the Holy Spirit on the church. This comes by prayer. The 144,000 are the first fruits. They are born of a chaste virgin after the Holy Spirit comes into her and makes her conceive. Look at Revelation 12. 
Here are the 144,000. They have the nature of Adam after the fall, yet they never sin. They are identical to Jesus Christ. They're identical to Jesus Christ. When Christ says, be like me, that's exactly what they will be like in almost every way. They would have had a prostitute as their ancestor, but yet they will be born of a chaste virgin who has the nature of Christ after the fall, nature of Adam after the fall, yet will never sin. And when they get to heaven, will serve in the sanctuary. Do you see this? Okay. Only Christ is worthy to open the book, and only Christ is able to redeem us and make the 144,000 white. Okay, this is it. This is the part that I've been waiting for because I love this part. So, every single year at Purim, the Jews get together and they say the little festival, the Purim, and they read the entire story of Esther. There are certain parts where they all read together. One of them is when they read the Ten Sons of Haman in Esther chapter 9. They hang the bodies of Haman, and they actually name the names of Haman. But they do it in a very odd way. They list the names vertically, top to bottom, like this. You know how Hebrew is supposed to go from right to left? They name it from top to bottom. But that's not all they do. They take a deep breath, and they say it all in one breath. Okay? They say it all in one breath. It's read at the festival perm each year on Adar, what number? Right here, right here, right? So what are the issues here? The Holy, the, sorry, the Holy Spirit is coming against the latter rain. There is gonna be a consummation of a marriage. There is the making of pure white. There is gonna be an, a um, um, consummation and there's gonna be a rebirth. Okay, so you guys know what I'm talking here. They've been doing this reading it in one breath for 2,500 years, and they don't know why, they just do it. They just do it. Why do we do it? Well, we've always done it, and we're going to keep doing it. So they just keep doing it, okay? Guess what? It's got meaning. This has been preserved for 2,500 years for your ears today. The fact that this is still in the Bible is a miracle in and of itself. Martin Luther didn't want it there. The Essenes didn't copy the books. It's a miracle that the book of Esther is even in the Old Testament. So the reason why it's listed up and down is because they felt that these bodies were not hung on gallows, rather they were impaled. That's how they used to do this stuff, okay? I know it's kind of gross, but anyway. These are the actual Hebrew names, but just like Hebrew names, they have, they're Persian names, but they have Hebrew meanings. Let me give you an example. If somebody from China came and their name was Tin, okay? In their language, Tin would mean something, but Tin in our language means something completely different, right? Tin is like metal, correct? So it's the same it's the same sound, but it has a different meaning. So obviously Haman named his children Persian names because they were living in Persia, but those names as they are spoken have Hebrew meaning. And so when they're written down in Hebrew, they become very apparent. Well, let's try it. Let's see if we can name all of Haman's 10 sons. By the way, what day of the week is this happening on? 14th. We got Prashadatha, Del... Oh, we gotta take a deep breath. Prashadatha, Delphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adelia, Eridatha, Parmashava, Erisai, Eridai, Vajdatha. Okay? Do you wanna know what you just said? Yes, yes you do. <laughs> so, this is, this is what I did. I simply took standard Christian dictionaries that have been around for 100 years, 
They're not even denominational dictionaries. These are Christian dictionaries based on meanings in the Hebrew language. We have Strong's. We've got Brown, Driver, Briggs, Hitchcock, Smith's, Easton's, Abram, proper names of the Bible. And I came up with meanings for these things. Here are the meanings. And if you take the meanings of these words and string them together, watch what you get and remember what day. Let's back up a little bit here. Esther was the one that asked for this, right? Who does Esther represent? And this was going to be raised in what city? So I haven't even told you what this means. Shushan represents the 144,000. The provinces represent the dead in Christ. That is why the people in Shushan must live an extra day to fight because they are going to, give, they are going to get the time. They, they are saved. They are saved by the grace of God. But because they are given the extra time and the latter rain, something that the provinces never got the benefit of, the fruits will come to maturity. And this will prove to the universe that God's law can be kept. This is not for their sake. This is for God's sake. Read Ezekiel 36. He says, I will purify you, but not for your sake, for my name's sake. Being perfect, being without sin, is not salvational here. What we are saved by is grace. The fruits of that grace is perfection. Do you understand what I'm saying? The provinces, the 75,000, that's the thief on the cross. He had absolute faith that the grace of Christ would see him through. And Christ, can you imagine Christ personally telling you, I'm telling you right now, you will be with me in paradise. We cannot argue with that. Did he have a chance to be a perfect man? He died on the cross a sinner. The thief died on the cross a sinner. But he has the same grace. So it's grace that saves us. But here and here and the 144,000 will be a rebuke to Satan that your law, God, is arbitrary and cannot be kept. He'll prove him wrong. Okay? Now, with that in mind, Esther, who represents Jesus Christ, is sending a message to who? The people that are about to prove the devil wrong. Are you ready? Are you ready? You have the context. Prashadatha means given by prayer. Delphon means rain. Aspatha means to gather men like the harvest or to protect. Paratha means fruitful. Adalia means to draw up. Eridatha means to harvest and a new and noble birth. Parmashata means a yearling bull or a bullock. Erisai means to be like a lion or lion-like. Eridai is the lion is enough, excellent and worthy. And Vajdatha means to sprinkle the chamber to purify, to make white. Now, take those, and not with a lot of license. Let's put it together in a paragraph. Given by prayer, the rain shall gather men like the harvest. 
protect them, and they shall be fruitful. For he will draw up the harvest and give them a new and noble birth. For he is a yearling bull, but is also like a lion. And he is enough, excellent, worthy to sprinkle the chamber and purify them and make them white. It's all there. He is the lion, and it's the lion is the only one, the lion from the tribe of Judah that can open the seventh seal. So here's a Jewish rabbi, and he's asked the question, why do you say the ten sons of Haman in one breath? You can actually go to the video. It's on Torah Cafe, and it's say ten sons of Haman on the Torah Cafe. So this is what he says. It's been the, the, the object of speculation in the Jewish community as to why Esther 9 verses 7 to 9 is treated as the other three redemptive verses. So there are four redemptive verses in the Megillah, which is the book of Esther. For instance, there is a man named Mordecai who lived in Shushan. That is a redemptive thing. It changes the storyline. And so everybody joins in. And there's two other places that happens. But for some reason, they say the ten sons of Haman this way, and they don't know why. It's obviously not redemptive, they say. They're killing, you know, ten people. It's retributive. So Rabbi Levi Kaplan says in an online lecture, says there are four places in the Megillah where the congregants join the reader, and those four places are areas that talk about redemption, those spots that mark a change, something great that happened, something that ushers in the victory, redemption, salvation of the Jewish people at that time. However, this is not the case when we talk about the ten sons of Haman. So why is it that the ten sons are recited by the congregants? And he goes on to give kind of some funny examples kind of on the Purim side. For those of you who don't know, Purim is kind of a, the New Year's of Jewish celebrations. They kind of get a little crazy, okay? But then he gets down to some brass tacks, and he says here, but, but let's get serious. He says, um, he says, since it is absolutely essential that each word be conveyed at a reading, it was necessary for each member of the congregant to say these names. The third reason, he says, which is the more serious, is for the reading of the ten sons of Haman in one breath and together is the most important for our study. Reading the ten sons in one breath is something that every person must experience on their own. We cannot fulfill our obligation, so to speak, by having someone else breathe for us. We have to recite the names of Haman's children in one breath of ours. Just as we can't appoint someone else to fill in for us, we can't hire a proxy to breathe for us, so too, with the reading of the Megillah, we have to experience reading the names in one breath. So let's read it again. Given by prayer, the rain. By the way, what's the only rain before the harvest? So let's just substitute that in. Given by prayer, the latter rain shall gather men like the harvest. Protect them, and they shall be fruitful. For he will draw up the harvest and give a new and noble birth to them. For he is a yearling bull, but is also like a lion. And he is enough, excellent, worthy to sprinkle the chamber, purify them, and make them white. Doesn't give you goosebumps? That message has been said every year for 2,500 years since the institution of Purim. And if you think about this for a second, those names were put in that order specifically and language was made. In, who, who invented language? Does Christ control? He controls the horizontal and the vertical. There's nothing that's out of his control. He controls everything. Seventh-day Adventists have the Elijah message, correct? 
He represents the 144,000 because he didn't die, but he was translated. He was taken care of by ravens in the wilderness. He gave a message about following God one of two ways, God or Baal, right? And he prayed for the rain. We pray for the rain here. Who else prayed for the rain? Elijah. How did Elijah pray for the rain? That's how we're supposed to pray for the latter rain. Have you ever thought about that? See, I'm going to leave you with this. If you go to the Bible, it will only tell you that he prayed seven times for the rain. It will not tell you how he prayed. Wouldn't you like to be a fly on a rock and translate somehow for the Hebrew about how Elijah prayed? Do you think it might have an application about how we are supposed to pray for the latter rain? If you go to patriarchs and prophets, Ellen White doesn't say much in there about how he prayed for the rain. Can we be so happy, though, that she wrote it down in Review and Herald? In an obscure text. Are you ready to see what she said? Okay, without this document, we don't have it. Would you like to know the secret about how Elijah prayed for the latter rain? This is how he prayed for the latter rain. You've got you've to make up your mind now before you find out that this is exactly how we have to pray for the latter rain to come. Because we're right here, and we're not very far from here, and you know when this starts, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And are we in the house of the Lord? We're very close, folks. Ellen White says that the latter rain will fall on people around us, and we won't even know that it's happening. This is what she says. Before the sacrifice, Elijah had said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. After the destruction of the prophets of Baal, Elijah said to Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound abundance of rain. After the king's departure, Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and cast himself down upon the earth. Here we go. He put his face between his knees. When he had bidden Ahab to go up and eat and drink, did he have any evidence that the showers were about to fall? He told him, go, there's rain coming. But did he have any evidence? Was there a single cloud in the sky? That's what we have to have, that kind of faith. Okay? When he had bidden Ahab to go up and eat and drink, did he have any evidence that the showers were about to fall? Did he see the clouds in the heavens? Did he see the rain or hear the thunder? No. He spoke these words because the Spirit of the Lord moved upon his mind and led him to believe that his prayer would be heard. He had done all that was possible to make manifest his faith, and now he began to pray for the outpouring of the abundance of rain. And this is how he prayed. He said to the servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. The servant watched while Elijah prayed. Six times he returned from the watch saying, There is nothing, no cloud, no sign of rain. But the prophet did not give up in discouragement. Watch this. He kept reviewing his life to see where he had failed to honor God. Leaven is removed. Leaven is being removed. Leaven is finally removed. He kept reviewing his life. He confessed his sins and thus continued to afflict his soul. What language is this? 
This is Day of Atonement language. Are we living in the Day of Atonement? Okay. Bef while watching for a token that his prayer was answered, as he searched his heart, he seemed to be less and less, both in his own estimation and in the sight of God. It seemed to him that he was nothing, and God was everything. And when he reached the point of renouncing self, while he clung to the Savior as his only strength and righteousness, that is when the answer came. The servant appeared and said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hands. And he said, Go up and say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariots, and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and that there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. I only have two more slides to show you, but I felt that it was relevant before we ended tonight to show you what Ellen White says attached to what she just said here, because I think it has a lot to do with our church today. Listen to what she says. There are many lessons to be drawn from the experience of Israel and the prophet of God. Remember, this was written many years ago. We are living in a time of apostasy similar to the time of which we have read. There is a great religious declension in the churches among professed people of God. The children of God should have a realization of their accountability and should direct their hearts towards God, seeking for strength and grace with an earnestness which they have never before manifested. There, was never, there never was a more solemn time in the history of the world than the time in which we are now living. Our eternal interests are at stake, and we should arouse to the importance of making our calling and election sure. We dare not risk our eternal interests on mere probabilities. We must be in earnest. What we are, what we are doing, what is to be our course of action in the future, all are all questions of untold moment, and we cannot afford to be listless, indifferent, unconcerned. It becomes each one of us to inquire, what is eternity to me? Are, the feet, are our feet in the path that leads to heaven or on the broad road that leads to perdition? All around us, the world is manifesting intense activity. There is a feeling of apprehension among all people. They are looking for some great event, but know not what it is to be. The state of affairs in Europe excites men's fears. And all are looking for those things that shall come upon the earth, and their hearts are failing them for fear. The nations are filled with anxiety, and there is a spirit of unrest and tumult on every hand. If ever there was a time when men should know their position, it is now. No man can afford to go blindfolded, not knowing in what road he is traveling, but careless and hoping to come out right in the end, for a great and disastrous will will be his awakening." Those who do not appreciate eternal life enough to work diligently for it will never obtain it. Those who are seeking earthly pleasure, worldly gain, and honor will never make a success of winning eternal life unless they repent and turn to God with all the heart. Review and Herald, May 26, 1891. Over a hundred years ago. So, this is my burden. This is what I've been... And I've simplified things, well, trust me, I've tried to simplify things. The, the basis of, of what I have found, what God has revealed, is that there is a pattern in the Bible. 
And if you take this pattern, and if you remember this morning the first five quotes that we gave up there, every fact has its bearing. Every prophecy is a completion of another prophecy. This is a great system of truth. The Bible is a living word. The Bible is alive. This book that was written almost 2,000 years ago, completed, still has stuff in it today for us that is ready to be unfolded if we simply take the time to study it and put it through its paces. I have no more. <laughs> but that is the book of Esther. And I believe, let me, let me just tell you frankly, what got me involved with this. I was a, I'm a physician. I'm, I'm very busy. And every Sabbath afternoon, I would listen to Ivor Myers <laughs> or some other pastor on Audioverse, and I would be so enriched. And then the rest of the week was draining. And I think one weekend, three or four years ago, I listened to Ivor Myers' Blueprint or the Fourth Decree or the Proposal or something like that. And I said in my mind, I just, I remember getting off the couch and turning to my wife and I said, is Ivor Myers going to just uncode the entire Bible before we get a chance to do this? I mean, what are we doing? So I made a, a point of, instead of quantity and on the surface, take a small patch like you're weeding in the garden. Say, this is my patch right here, and I'm going to dig down as deep as I can until I hit gold. And for me, that was the book of Esther. But for you, it may be the book of Ruth. It could be Job. It could be Kings. And I guarantee you, if you just take one book of the Bible and just go from the beginning to the end and say, I'm going to understand everything that I need to know about this book, you can't help but be pushed to the other books of the Bible. I... I said, I'm going to study the book of Esther. Do you see where we went today? We went over the Bible. Everything was related to Esther, but we went all over the Bible. And it's the same thing with the human body. If I'm going to study the lungs, you know, the lungs affect the heart. The lungs affect the kidneys. They're affected by the brain. It shouldn't surprise you. The heart, the lungs, they're all organs of the same body. These are all books of the same Bible. God created both. So why would we expect them to act any differently? Right? We serve a wonderful God. Let's go ahead and, and have a word of prayer before we break. Dear Lord, thank you for bringing us through this marathon of study. Help us to, to study the Bible to get that gold, that gold that leads to eternal salvation, not the gold mine that eventually gives up its gold and it has no more to give, but this gold mine that has continued to give and will continue to give. But it is not for earthly treasure, but for eternal salvation. So much more, infinitely more valuable. Thank you for giving, thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for giving us justification that we may return your love and with the help of the Holy Spirit and with the Holy Spirit get sanctification that we may be in your kingdom. In thy name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.